My name is Shaw Selby. I'm an explorer with the National Geographic Society and a fellow there working on conservation technology. So that basically is the intersection of tech and conservation, how we can bring things like drones and sensors and apps to really change the way that we protect the most charismatic species um, on this planet and, and some of the most beautiful and pristine wild spaces that we still have. Here's a guy whose work places him at the intersection of wildlife conservation and Silicon Valley innovation. He's upbeat and vastly invested in his work, but then again, Shaw Selby is also a realist. This stance can come across as cynical if even a little dystopian when he talks about humanity's role in altering the planet. There are some pretty... Uh pretty depressing undertones about everything, right? I mean, we are living in an era where species extinction is almost a thousand times higher than what the, the baseline extinction rate is. And so that causes a lot of people to call this time the sixth mass extinction. So just like, you know, the ice age or what happened to the dinosaurs, they're saying this age is the first extinction that's actually caused by a single species. And that species is human because the way that we're changing the planet and the impact that we're having on species. So while this sounds like mankind is ushering an end to wildlife diversity and natural environments as we know it, on scale, folks like Selby are actually trying to curtail such a calamity. So yeah, it's very easy to get like bummed out about everything. But I, I think at the same time, we're living in this, this situation where it's very easy to change things. Like, you know, we live in an era where you can get a word out to pretty much most of the world almost instantaneously, you know, through the internet and just through, you've seen some of these campaigns that have just impacted all sorts of people. And, and this is something that we've never been able to do before, right? We, we, we can engage people in a way that was just impossible maybe even 10 years ago. Um, and the other great thing is, you know, it's a lot easier to talk to people and to convince people the impact that their actions end up taking. You know, you see lots of folks really interested in green technology or sustainability or eating healthier and all these sorts of things. And that's all just because like you can talk to them about the impact that this is having and demonstrate it through interesting media or, or other forms and really have that impact. Selby's optimism in the possibilities of conservation reveals his interest and fluency with technology, which is why it's worth relating all the intrepid and inspiring work he and his team are doing, even for the most fatalistic among us. The Okavango Wilderness Project is located in a wetlands area in northern Botswana along the Okavango Delta. It's a type of place that is so diverse in wildlife that it borders on the picturesque, and is probably what many of us conceive of when we think of Sub-Saharan Africa, a wilderness populated with beautiful and charismatic animals. Prior to Selby's arrival to the project in 2014, surveying was being conducted in the old-fashioned way. Biologists, notepads in hand, adding a tick mark for each animal that they saw. Selby and his crew saw an opportunity to leverage technology like smartphone apps, drones, and sensors to bring the whole expedition forward and increase its impact. The entire expedition takes place on dugout canoes, and we put sensors all over the canoes to test water as we're traveling through. We built apps that allow the researchers just to count the wildlife as they go through, and we outfitted everything with, you know, heartbeat monitors, 360 cameras, all sorts of stuff, and the tech that would allow us to take all that data and stream it live to the world. 
Um, so we worked with this uh, organization based in New York called the Office for Creative Research to build a website called intotheokavango.org. And on that website, everything that we saw, every wildlife sighting, every picture that we took, every tweet that we sent, heartbeat from the researchers that are out there was streamed live for the whole world to see. Um, and so we did that for a number of years and it was just the reaction we had from people was phenomenal. Um, we had people all over the world following us. We even had, um, we had uh, somebody who was following us that we didn't expect. There was a there was a part of the expedition in 2015 that was really difficult. It was in Angola, um, and the river was windy. It was it was really um, it was really brutal. There was bees everywhere, and it was super hot during the day and cold at night. And so the spirits of the researchers were really low. Everyone was really depressed. And so in the spirit of sharing everything online, we complained about it on Twitter. Um, and one of our Twitter followers saw that and responded. And that Twitter follower was uh, Samantha Cristoforetti, who was a European Space Agency astronaut that was on the International Space Station and following our expedition from space. Uh, so like I think from a science outreach standpoint, like that project has been an absolute success because we not only had people following us on this planet, but those off of it. Since then, Selvia has begun to develop an open source project called FieldKit that will allow anyone to build sensors and other hardware similar to those he used in Botswana. We really saw the power in being able to bring this tech to expeditions and to people out in the field. And so since then, we've started to develop a platform that allows anybody in the world to do that. And it's a project that we called Field Kit. So we basically build the sensors and the hardware and the website so that just like how WordPress would allow anybody to start their own blog, fieldkit.org is going to allow anybody to start their own expedition or just measure the world around them. So that Okavango project, we started putting sensors and, and all sorts of tech, not only in Botswana, but also in Namibia and Angola and built these massive networks of sensors that are just monitoring that environment real time. And now, now you could do the same thing if you just get field kit sensors and, and put them out in, in the real world around you. And so that's a project that we're working on that's going to be released later in 2017. Recently, they applied this tech in a project that involves studying a place that hadn't previously been thoroughly explored by scientists since it's a culturally important water source to a local indigenous population. We just very recently built this autonomous water sampling probe that we sent down into a boiling river in the middle of the Peruvian Amazon. Um, this river has not been scientifically explored in that sort of way, but it's a very important cultural river for the area down there. So we had special permission from the shaman to be able to, to study that river. And we worked with Andres Russo, who's a geothermal scientist that's really trying to understand how that river works. Switching climbs, Selby has also ventured to Banff National Park in Canada to study the Bow Glacier that feeds a nearby river of the same name. The river flows through Calgary, and the city has selected Selby and his team to track how the glacier is flowing over time. We also put a bunch of sensors on a glacier in Banff National Park in Canada. Um, the glacier that we were studying is called the Bow Glacier, um, and it feeds the Bow River that runs right through Calgary. And so um, the city of Calgary asked us to track how that glacier is changing over time. So we took a bunch of expeditions up there. We installed all these sensors around it, and the sensors are geophones, which are ground microphones, basically, and, and accelerometers, which is the same sensors that all of us have in our smartphones. It tells how your smartphone is, what orientation it's in 
frozen and how it's moving over time. And we put these sensors around the glacier to track how it's changing and, and how fast it's melting. And that data is being streamed live and brought back to the city of Calgary, where at the base of the tallest building in Calgary, they're going to build this massive park and public art installation that's going to take that live data from the glacier and turn it into lights and sounds. And so the people will really see how that's changing over time, because once that glacier changes, that river is going to dry up and Calgary is going to be a different city forever. The final concurrent project that Selby is working on is called Undersea Connection, which consists of buoys deployed all over the world that are equipped with smartphone-connected underwater microphones. What we're doing is we're building these um, buoys that we're deploying in waters all over the world, and we're putting essentially smartphones on them with microphones, and the microphones go underwater. Uh, it's, it's called a hydrophone when you put a microphone underwater, and, and it's listening. It's listening for the sounds underwater, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to put them in sensitive parts of the ocean, so in marine protected areas where fishing's not allowed, and we're going to listen to see if we can hear fishermen in that area, and if we do hear a fisherman fishing in somewhere where they're not supposed to be, then these devices will send a notification to the Coast Guard to come and stop that person from doing it. Or in other ways, we're going to use them um, to listen for whales and shipping lanes. And so if uh, you were to hear a whale passing through these shipping areas, then that notification would go to the shipping companies to tell them to slow their boats down so they don't end up crashing into the whales and killing the whales, which is a big issue um, with whale conservation nowadays. Mostly, though, the project is focused on biodiversity underwater, and Selby is focusing his attention on a local body of water, the Port of Los Angeles. There, he can listen to all the vessel traffic on the one hand, as well as to the shrimp that are living underneath the port on the other. Selby's plan is to expand the scope to 100 buoys, all streaming data live to a smartphone app. So we have some of these buoys that are already out. One's in the port of Los Angeles, and it's listening to all the vessel traffic that's passing by and the shrimp that are living underneath the port and, and all that stuff. Um, but we're planning to expand that project out and put 100 of them all over the world. And all that stuff is streamed live to an app that we're going to release so that if you want to hear what it sounds like underwater, you could just download the app and pick your place in the world and, and listen to what it is under the sea. What undergirds all of these expeditions is the innovative use of new technologies, specifically the access to open source hardware and software, coupled with the ability to produce inventions and apps quickly and cheaply. My work is really, it really benefits because of the area that we live in, you know, this, this age of innovation that we've seen with things like smartphones. So originally, like if you wanted to build your own circuit board or build your own computer, it was a, it was a pretty difficult thing to do, right? You had to it was almost impossible to get the computer chips to allow you to do that. Uh, you would hand build it and it would end up being huge. But because of the smartphone industry, because of, of the internet and because of everything that we've seen come out of places like Silicon Valley, this has like made everything shrink and it's made everything become very, very easy. So we, we a lot of times we use the same kind of sensors and chips that you find in your average iPhone. Um, and we benefit from the fact that there's billions of those things out there already. And all the work that we work on follows this phenomenon called open source. Open source technology and software is this amazing phenomenon for Selby, because of which he sees opportunity where there were once numerous hurdles. Now, inventions can be built in just under a week in some circumstances and be shipped directly to your doorstep. 
now we live in this time where thanks to open source, basically all the designs and the technology for all this stuff is just it's free to use on the internet. This is something that came out of the software world. The entire internet was based off of open source development. So nowadays, if you want to build something, you really just do a bit of research. You understand how it works. You can order the parts in your couch. You can design the, the bit on your computer and you can send that file off to some factory somewhere anywhere in the world and get it built. And in you know just under a week, that whole device, your invention will show up on your doorstep. And so this is this amazing phenomenon that we can now build things and innovate faster than we've ever been able to um, in history. And so we're really leveraging that for conservation. And so the boards that we build, the circuit boards that we build, the sensors and everything makes use of these components that are available online and they're very cheap nowadays. Coupling the open source tech with cheap build and shipping costs allows Selby and his team to make custom designs for the various projects and scientists they work with. That could mean a water quality testing circuit board, the same kind they've taken all over the world from the Okavango to Peru. Such adaptability means that whether it's a gas tank, Wi-Fi adapter, or radios, the systems will talk to each other, creating an Internet of Things device capable of broadcasting and receiving data with other connected devices. This works as a failsafe as well. If a communication system falters, one of the other boards can send its data to another. The advent of open source and drone technology has broadened the scope of Selby's work. With the cheap cost of circuit boards, sensors, and drones, it improves upon the efficacy and potential of conservation. Selby supplements these types of studies with lots of drone surveying, which uses the sensors he's applied in previous projects. The drones help solve more immediate and unexpected demands as well, such as helping teams untangle whales from fishing gear, to mapping coastlines and understanding how erosion is changing the shore over time. This helps explain why Selby describes the field kit circuit board as the core brains of the whole thing. The impetus for Selby is to constantly improve upon these circuits and sensors as innovations and updates become available. To improve their chances of success out in the field, Selby and his team test a variety of networks they can rig, including cell, Wi-Fi, and satellite, as well as see how they work with the ultrasonic and water quality sensors that they use for their projects. There's this app called iNaturalist that allows anybody to go out there with a smartphone, take a picture of a plant or animal, and then upload it. And that picture is then um, characterized by biologists that will go on and say, oh, that's this specific species. And so these biodiversity assessments are super important for the way that we do conservation. But there's not an easy way to get all that environmental metadata behind it. So if you start to see these species in areas where the temperature is this or the humidity is that, then we can start to gain some really interesting insight out of it. So we're building a little field handheld field module that you can strap to a backpack or do whatever you want to do with it. But it takes those environmental readings. So as you're seeing these different animals or plants in different different areas, you can always go back and you can say, oh, this is what the temperature, humidity, dew point, and all that stuff is for that area. Besides laypersons and recreational use, Selby wants biologists and naturalists who are surveying wildlife like those in the Okavango Wilderness Project to use the field kit as well. Using 3D printing allows Selby ample room to prototype what kind of touch, feel, and form he wants. Ultimately, all this product testing and hypothesizing serves to determine what is most useful. 
as we're designing this thing, we're thinking through like what would be interesting stuff for people to have on a handheld like that? Is it important for them to have a compass on it or do they want to attach it using a carabiner? And so everything we do, we 3D print. And so we can kind of see what the touch and the feel and, and the form factor is of it. You know, it, do we want to have a screen on it? Is it important to have a whistle integrated into it? Things that might be useful once you're out in the field and you're kind of looking through what you would use when you're out there. The end result of this fine-tuning will, in Selby's estimation, produce an ergonomic and useful device with a multitude of features integrated into it, all of which ties back to a particular focal point, the seafood industry and marine preservation. Through the internet and connected devices, as well as smart media campaigns and platforms like the Monterey Bay Aquarium app, the global populace is understanding the importance of fisheries and the need for more sustainable practices for catching fish. Though, to be fair, when the thought of mass extinction preoccupies your mind, when it is the impetus for your work, the world over can seem lawless and you wonder why everyone else isn't as alarmed as you are. The seafood industry was crazy. It was like the Wild West for the longest time. Um, and then you had these organizations that were really pushing sustainability. Like Monterey Bay Aquarium put out this Seafood Watch app that has tens of millions of people have downloaded all over the world. And now they make better decisions just based off of um, what they have. And that's changing in real time. It's changing fisheries. It's changing the way that we're, we're catching these things. It's being uh, more sustainable and better about the future, a key part of the way that these businesses operate. Well, the other thing is, you know, we've we've learned as a global society the importance of protecting things um, in a way that we haven't done it before. And so, you know, we're protecting more of the ocean faster than we've ever done it. We're protecting a lot of a lot of the, the places that have really interesting biodiversity or are, are understanding the impacts of that and the importance of even tourism on that sort of stuff. And, and they're they're working very hard to protect these species um, as a conservationist. This is kind of like the golden era of conservation. You know, you have more people in the world excited and in interested in it than you ever have before, right? You can have a filmmaker make a movie like Blackfish or a movie like The Cove and actually like have serious impacts on that industry, right? Change the way that people do business. And that's a, that's a super amazing thing. It's really, really fascinating. Again, we see how principled Selby is in his faith in humanity's ability to comprehend how its behaviors promulgate disaster and mass extinction, or at a minimum, he sees how scientists and conservationists are equipping themselves with the latest tools to convey the importance of protecting species and spaces faster than ever before. Smartphones weren't what they are today. You know, you don't, I see smartphones in every part of the world that I go nowadays. And, um, and it didn't used to be like that. And when I would go to conservation organizations in this time and say, hey, you know what, we should use drones, they would think, not of like the drones that you know people get for Christmas, not DJI and stuff like that. They're thinking about the drones that were flying in Iraq and Afghanistan at that point, right? They're thinking of these big, scary predator stuff. And since technology has really like gotten to such a huge part of each and every one of our lives, that discussion with those groups has been easier. Whereas before they were like, oh, I don't know if technology has a place there. I think we just have to be more environmental at the things that they do. Now they're all like, yes, let's get a drone and let's stop these people from killing these rhinos. Now that such tech has become an everyday feature of our lives, however, these types of discussions tend to go more smoothly, with the scientists lending their adamant stamp of approval. 
the, the prevalence of technology has made people understand the impact that, that tech has and the way that it can actually solve problems. And so, yeah, it's, it's completely changed the work that I do. It's made for some, some really exciting collaborations. So now you have companies like Google and Microsoft that are very active in creating, um, creating technology for these, these conservation projects and partnering with organizations like National Geographic on that. So it's great, it's really fantastic. Yeah, Selby would contend that he and his team are trying to stop extinction, or more practically, at least temper the rate at which it's occurring. Both the decline in biodiversity and technological innovations illustrate how the world is constantly changing in myriad ways that complicate preservation projects as much as they help broaden the scope of conservation's aims and capabilities. Still, Selby doesn't think it has to be this way, so pessimistic. There's an understanding that things are going to change. What this translates to on an actionable level means being flexible and realistic, of not only conceiving of conservation as synonymous with preservation. When it comes to the work that I do um, with conservation, it's we're trying to protect things as much as possible. We're trying to stop things like extinction. We're trying to stop development that is encroaching on ecologically sensitive or important areas, right? We're trying to keep people from changing this planet in a way that's going to make it fundamentally worse off, right? And so there's a big part of conservation that's really in the preservation of the way things are. Um, there's also an understanding that things are going to change, right? I mean, climate change is getting to the point where we're talking more about resilience, you know, how we can work with things to change in a way that in the future, it's not going to be doom and gloom. In the future, it's just going to be a different version of it um, in a way that we can kind of um, still protect these places. Given climate change and humanity's increasing spread and development of the planet, preservation is perhaps the least tenable part of conservation's aims. For the last like 20 years, we've had some conservation successes, but we've had a lot of failures in that. Being very rigid and trying to keep everything exactly the same way doesn't necessarily work when you have communities that are becoming wealthier or developing, right? If you, there's all these other things that we have to care about, the political system there, the, the government, we have to care about the education of the folks in the area. We have to care about the well-being of the folks in the area. We have to make sure that these communities actually have a future alongside the wonderful, you know, wildlife habitats that they're in. And so that's really caused conservation to start thinking through more of like a, an overall or a holistic way of of how can we do that? We can build industry, we can start businesses, but at the same time, we can protect special places and we can keep people from, from poaching. For an example of putting thoughts into action, once more, Selby looks to the sea. He sees the shift in conservation, the approaching changes manifesting in ocean conservation, where coastline protection today means a considered compromise. So I think I think we're, we're moving forward in terms of understanding the importance of protecting the areas and keeping them as much as they are. But we also understand that, that the world is a complicated place and that we just can't protect everything, right? We have to, we have to kind of figure out what makes the most sense from an ecological, biological, scientific standpoint to protect and focus on those areas and work with everybody that, that we can to do that, whether that be government or business or, or, or just the general public. It's not necessarily heroics that Selby and those he works with are engaged in. In fact, it may come from a sense of dread that 
just as quickly, however, evolves into a sense of duty. If humanity has failed by ushering in an era of mass extinction, then it has also forced conservationists, scientists, and really anyone with an appreciation for living on Earth to double down on protecting what's left. 